Good evening. Uh, my name is Jason, and I work here. Um, this is an emergency mic because this thing still isn't fixed. Uh, so I need to order a new one next week. Um, if, uh, if our mic problems bother you, you can donate to the house and we'll get new mics. It'd be great. Um, a couple things before we get into the sermon tonight. Um, just mostly as reminders, uh, Kirsten said this earlier, we've been advertising it a lot on social media. It's been downstairs in the hub area. It, it truly is the last bit of time to sign up for core groups until next year. Um, uh, and I encourage you to do that. If uh, a commitment scares you, um, we sort of have the, the structure set up so that 45-minute chat session is all that signing up commits you to so you can make a better decision. So uh, just so you know, I mean, this has been a really, really life-changing experience for so many people. Um, we can't uh, guarantee that every single experience is awesome, partly because people sometimes don't commit when they say they're going to and things like that and whatever. But, but each year, uh, in recent years, there's been between three and 400 students that have participated in these and meet every single week with leaders from all around the city. Um, it's been incredible. And, and our staff and leaders put in something like 600 hours in placement and interviews. Um, I'd encourage you to take advantage of it. It's very likely that you'll never um, be in an organization that spends so much time uh, trying to, to, to do our best to be faithful in, in, um, in, in creating and cultivating a sort of a group with, with chemistry and purpose and commitment together. Uh, so I encourage you to take advantage of that and sign up in the back after this. Um, also, um, because of how much emphasis we place on core groups, we don't really announce a lot of other stuff in the first few weeks. Um, and so if, um, just so you know, if you're new here, um, there's a whole host of things that we'll be doing over the course of the year. Um, we'll advertise everything on, on social media things um, and on Tuesday nights, but, but we have things like missions, um, national and international um, retreats, uh, hiking trips, seminars. I don't know. We have drop-in Bible studies, um, and, and we've said this a few times, but um, our staff, full-time staff of seven, um, we have how many? Uh, 17 student interns. I think it's actually 18 now. Um, we have a lot of student interns, and, and we would love on leadership to just meet with you and know you, get to know your story, and, and ask how we might um, help you navigate life through college. So anyway, a little intro stuff. Um, anyway, during, during my first year of college, um, uh, in 1998, uh, I remember seeing this book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I don't know if you know of it, uh, but it was for sale like everywhere in 1998. This book came out like crazy um, and uh, it was a huge success. I remember right off the bat um, seeing uh, so many copies of, of this book at Costco, my local big box retail store in Seattle. Um, and it looked something like this. Would you put that picture of, of the most recent Harry Potter book up? So I remember seeing like scores of stacks of these things in Costco and up to that point, the only thing that I'd ever seen like that was some John Grisham novels and these books called Left Behind books. Um, and so this was sort of like, I didn't know if this was like a new Left Behind book. <laughs> uh, anyway, you may not know what those are. That's a different generation. But anyway, um, but I remember seeing like this massive amount of books and this was such a surprising success. It was a very surprising success. One, um, one thing I read said um, that the New York Times, in response to the, the success of the first book, had to create a whole other category of bestsellers for children's books. They never had a top 10 children's books thing before, but, but Harry Potter um, really launched like the, the success of this genre, uh, and, you know, in mass. And it was, it was a very, very surprising thing um, to see. And, and what was most surprising to me actually was uh, that there were a lot of Christians who like weren't, weren't reading it on purpose. 
And so I want you to, to read just a couple of these quotes. These are on um, uh, Christianity Today's sort of review site of the movies. And I don't know when these were said. I just picked a couple of out. These are some things some people were saying about the books. All spell casting is bad. There is no good spell casting. We get our miracles, blessings, hearings, etc. from God. We do not get them from Satan. Okay, so that's Mr. J. Buck. That's the, he's very strongly opinionated. Reverend Judy Lang. Potter is unhealthy spiritually and psychologically as it invariably leads to the type of things children from 5 to 18 find intriguing and will try to imitate, which is very dangerous if they do those things. Satan is just copying God. I'm sorry if you don't get it. Actually, get it isn't quoted. Get it. Um, I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, this is the kind of stuff I was experiencing in 1998. I was just trying to figure out what it meant, what it means to be a Christian when I entered college. I was wondering if this was, uh, if I really believed that Jesus was God, and I was sorting that stuff out. And it, this was the year Harry Potter came out, and I remember thinking, I wonder what what are what are Christians about? Like, what are Christians about? I'll let you decide exactly what to do with Harry Potter, but but that was the first time I remember thinking about Christians like resisting something in culture. It had happened. I can look back now and see other things. That was the first time I really thought about it. And it brought up this question for me. As I was considering following Jesus, what posture should Christians take toward the world around us? Our families, our college campuses, the cities that we live in do not often look like the kingdom of God. So what should we do? Should we resist it and not read things like Harry Potter? Should we separate and create safe little communities where no one even hears of Harry Potter? Should we try to make Christian versions of whatever we see in the world and have like a Jesus Potter or whatever the thing is? I don't know. I don't know. Somebody else can come up with a name. That's not my deal. Uh, or, or should we just assume that everything is fine for us and uncritically join in? If the world is doing it, so can we freedom in Christ, y'all, you know, kind of stuff. Is that what we do? What are Christians supposed to do? What would God have us do? For me, I think about this as it comes to something like the classroom. I know students who are in a tizzy about a, a professor who goes on a rant about Christianity, and they begin to wonder if I should ever even read any books anymore or go to class. What are we supposed to do when it comes to the classroom or to our roommates, to our government? What is God's plan for your life? When you're in a cultural environment that isn't specifically or intentionally or explicitly the kingdom of God. If your professor is railing against Christians or your roommates are acting in ways that you find unethical or the country we live in has policies and laws which don't align with your personal convictions, what then? What are you supposed to do? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. As we look at the life of Daniel and the Old Testament, and as we do this, my prayer is that through his word, God gives you a better picture of his hopes and his plans for your life, for what he wants of your life, and also of, of who he is. What kind of God would dream up these kinds of plans? Who is he who wants all of this for his people and for this world? And my prayer is that as we, as we talk about these things, you don't lose sight, because we're going to go through a lot of Scripture together, that, that you don't lose sight of the God who would ask his people to be like this. What must he be like? I pray that you come to know him, and that we come to adore him together. Let's pray as we start opening the word. Uh, Father, 
Um, but pray that the, the meditation of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be faithful and pleasing to you. And may your spirit open ears and hearts and minds. May your spirit speak clearly to us and give us a vision that is of you, that is faithful to your word. And may we come to know you more through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the book of Daniel, chapter one, I encourage you to bring your Bibles um, just so that you're familiar with them and that you read them. You can use your digital versions if you want, but uh, we'll have it up on the screen each week, but I, I really do encourage you to bring them with you. Um, Daniel chapter one, verses three through seven. Um, this, this is the New Living Translation. Um, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the, his chief of staff, or his chief eunuch. Oh, this is the ESV. Um, uh, I'll read that version, that's fine. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch or chief of staff, uh, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king, and among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. You can just leave that up for now. That'd be great. So Daniel was this teenager. We talked a little bit about this last week. He was ripped from his home and placed under rule in a foreign kingdom. Babylon was literally the enemy of God's people at this time. It's not figurative language, literally the enemy of God's people. And Daniel wasn't just living there. He wasn't just a slave there. He was eating their food, studying their language and culture, trained for service in the kingdom of Babylon and given a new name in just about every way possible he was being assimilated and remade into a new kind of man and i i i want to kind of go into this a lot i'm just going to say this briefly to move on to other things for us but but i don't want us to miss this what's happening is he's being reprogrammed that's what's happening to these people of israel as they're being brought into babylon through through seduction of the cultural goods in a particular way of life through education and through association. Daniel and his friends are being reprogrammed for service in the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom which just wrecked the city of God. I'm emphasizing this to say it's not that the city got overthrown and Daniel just has to figure out like what to do with his time now in a new country. He's being enlisted on behalf of Babylon to further Babylon. What should he do? What should he do? If our kids, if our youth, if the best of us were taken away to serve the enemy of our people, whoever that might be, what would you think they should do? What should Daniel and the other Israelites do in their circumstance? In other words, what's God's plan for Daniel's life? He shouldn't simply go along with it, should he? 
Well, we don't have to guess, right? Uh, God does not leave him without instruction. He doesn't leave us without instruction for him. And actually, God doesn't leave us without instruction in our context either. We'll get to that. But many of you might have heard the very famous verse out of Jeremiah. I quoted this last week or the week before. Um, if you just put that verse up, that'd be great. Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. While Daniel and his friends are in exile in Babylon, while they're there, God actually tells the prophet Jeremiah, write a letter, Jeremiah, and send it to all these people like Daniel that are in Babylon in exile. Write this letter and send it to them so that they know what I want of them while they are there. That's a very nice provision of God to do that, right? What is Daniel supposed to do? I don't have to guess. He actually, God's actually writing a letter to us. Wouldn't you want the same thing? I mean, that sounds like a pretty nice gig, right? Getting a letter from God, whatever. All right, so let's look at the plans God has for them, right? How they're supposed to live. Would you just uh, pull out the fullness of this text here? We're just gonna look at Jeremiah uh, 29, four through 14. <coughs> um, okay, so this is New Living, here we go. This is what the Lord of the heaven's armies, the God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem, right? So the introduction. God has all this to say to all of you who are in exile in Jerusalem at this time. Build homes and plan to stay. I don't know if you would hear that as encouraging. We just got ripped out of our homeland. A letter is coming on the horizon. What, let's see what God has to say for us. Is he going to rescue us? What's he going to do for us? Is he going to overthrow Babylon now? Is he going to tell them that we're right and they're wrong? Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. In other words, dig in for the long haul. Stay. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. Don't let the strangeness and the hardness really of this get lost on you. Everything they believed couldn't happen just happened and they're in enemy territory being reprogrammed to further their kingdom. And now God comes and he says, look out for their welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they're telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week, right? Don't listen to false teaching while you're there either. This is what the Lord says, you will be in Babylon for 70 years. Then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Build homes, plant gardens, marry. Look out for the welfare of the city and stay away from false teaching. I'll be back in 70 years. 70 years. Daniel's probably 15 years old, maybe close to 20 by the time this letter comes. If God comes back in 70 years, how old will Daniel be? 
do you think you'll even get to see the restoration God's talking about? Do you think you'll even get to see the people going back to the, the land that God took them from? If God won't bring about those long-term promises for 70 years, how should Daniel spend the rest of his life if he's supposed to be faithful to God? Here I am under foreign teaching and foreign rule, eating foreign food with a foreign name. Incidentally, the names of all of Daniel and his friends in, in Hebrew were associated with God. And his new names were, their new names are all associated with foreign gods. It's, in, it's on purpose. Here we are in this context. I don't even have my name anymore. I can't wait to hear what God has to say. And he says, stay and look out for the welfare of these people. I'm coming back in 70 years. And Daniel could rightly say, I'll be dead by then. God says, I know. Here's what you do in the meantime. Build a house and live in it. Plant a garden, eat from it. Marry and have kids, a lot of them. Multiply, make sure your kids have kids. Look out for the welfare of the city. Pray for it and stay away from false teaching. So, Daniel, so God actually commands Daniel and all of the Israelites in exile not only to be agreeable in their circumstance, but to actually help Babylon, to help the welfare of Babylon. If God sent you a letter specifically for your time of life and it contained these sorts of instructions, how would you receive them? Be present where you are. Invest there. Live within the context of your culture. Multiply. Look out for the welfare of the people in the world around you and stay away from false teaching. What if that's what God told you to live like for the rest of your life? Friends, virtually all of the instructions that God gives to the Israelites, he gives similar ones to us. In similar words through his apostles. But instead of 70 years, we're told to wait for Jesus to return. In the meantime, what kinds of things are we supposed to be doing? I'm just going to paraphrase different Bible verses from around the New Testament. We're supposed to work and earn a living. We're supposed to be dependent upon no one but God. We're supposed to make sure that no one has any cause to speak poorly about us. We're not supposed to listen to false teaching. Let me get specific. Here's a wonderful example of Scripture, of God's instruction from Paul's letter to Timothy. It's a friend of his and an elder over this church in Ephesus. And here's what Paul has to say. To Timothy, I want you to pay attention to some kind of similar themes here. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. Do you see similar kinds of themes? Pray for everyone. Ask God to help them. Do you do this for your professors? Do you do this for your roommates? You are also encouraged to pray to God to help you with them 
absolutely. But here God is telling us to pray for their help, not ours. Intercede for them, which means intervene on their behalf. And do, your, and do you follow up your prayers with your life? Do you actually help your professors teach you? Do you look out for their welfare? What about your bosses at work? Do you make it easier for them to be your boss, to succeed in their jobs? What about your mentors or your parents? What is God's plan for your life? Pray for them. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and more. Give thanks for them. Have you thanked God for your professors and roommates lately? For your parents? For your leaders in church and in government? Pray this way for political leaders and all who are in authority. Why? First, for their sake, we pray on their behalf. Because God cares about them also, right? But also so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. And do you see how that's just assumed? Like the Apostle Paul assumes that this is what we're striving for. Peaceful, quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. That's what he says we're striving for. Brothers and sisters, I'm right now talking about God's plan for your life. That's what we're talking about. Is your life marked by godliness and dignity? What is God's plan for your life? No matter how it is nuanced for your individual story, which it will be, all of God's plans for us are marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior, Paul says up here. God wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. What is God's will for your life? If you're a Christian, it is not securing some 70-year plan for yourself. That's not God's will for our lives. Rather, it is offering your entire life in a sacrifice of love to God and on behalf of other human beings. It is like Daniel to see your life in the service of God's work to bring others to himself. Look out for the welfare of your roommates. Look out for the welfare of your classmates, of your professors and administrators. Look out for the welfare of this very city within which you live, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Look out for the welfare of our country. Look out for the welfare of our world. Our great king has sent us on mission to lift our eyes off ourselves and look out for the welfare of others. Even within the opportunities that exist in this ministry for community formation, and I don't care what it is, core groups, missions, retreats, seminars, hanging out downstairs in the hub, in every instance, there is a way for you to participate for the sake of others. Sign up for a core group for you, sure, definitely. But also sign up for others. They need you. What would it look like if Christians lived this way? Instead of fighting against culture, instead of copying culture, instead of selling out to culture, what if we actively looked out for the welfare of others? Instead, we often do things like this. Did you put that image up? Straight out of God's word. You know what this stuff does? Truly, what this stuff does? It doesn't take seriously the problems that are talked about in that film. That's what it does. It says, I, I'm probably not, I guarantee that the youth group that made this shirt does not encourage their kids to go see Straight Outta Compton. I guarantee it. 
all the kids will see straight out of Compton probably because of that. But, uh, but I guarantee they're not, the same people that made this do not encourage anybody to see straight out of Compton. And instead of actually looking at the world and caring for its welfare, we do some spin of it and come back to our safe little communities and look out for our own. What Christians are taking seriously the problems that are brought up in that film and are interceding on their behalf, the people and the culture's behalf that it's dealing with? Who is praying for them? Who is working for them? Instead, we do something like this and we move on. Pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede for them. Imagine if we did that instead of made things like that. Imagine what it would look like on this campus if Christian students were known to be people who looked out for the welfare of others. What if professors said, my Christian students are the easiest ones to teach because of the ways they study and learn and the ways they respect me in class? What if other students said, I want Christian students as roommates into my group project because of how much they look out for my welfare through their respect and work ethic? What if our political leaders said Christians are the most faithful citizens in our nation? working for the welfare of all people that live here. Friend, do you not see that this is the kind of work that God wants for his people? To be clear, would you put up that First Timothy passage again for me? To be clear, we do not save others. God does that. Read up there. There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus. And he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Salvation is something God does. What we do, by his grace, we live like him in the world. Giving our lives to others, trusting that God will show himself to others through us. This is God's plan for us. That we would love each other and we would give ourselves for others. And just for a minute, I want you to think about how much better, if you could possibly believe it, how much better God's plan is than yours. Which one of us in this room and our plans for the school year is considering the welfare of the whole world? Which one of us in our plans for this semester is even considering the, the children that live around the dorms on this campus? Which one of us in the plans for the semester is considering uh, the welfare of the faculty and administration on this campus? Or the city that we might even once live in, one day live in? This, this is me geeking out for a minute, but I just want to um, give you guys an example of how, how different God's plans are than ours. This is absolutely crazy to me. When the Apostle Paul went on missionary journeys all around the known world at the time, in the first century, do you know the first place he visited at every stop? Everywhere he went, there was one place he went to first. It was the synagogues. The Israelite, the Jewish synagogues which wouldn't have been there if the exile didn't happen. Because of the exile, because of this thing that seems so unimaginable to the Israelites, this couldn't possibly be God's plan, could it? God would never let his city get overthrown and scatter his people, would he? There were little bastions of God's people and God's word all over the world. All those little outposts gave Paul a foothold in those cities allowing the gospel to spread like wildfire. Israel was looking for God to, to, God's plan for them. God, what is your plan for me? God had a plan that took into account the whole world. 
God was thinking global. Israel was thinking national. Probably each person in Israel, like us, was just thinking personal. Israel would have protected herself and told, seriously, never let the temple fall. Israel is part of this nation. That's it. Let, let everybody come to us. We're supposed to be a light to the world. Let everybody come to us. That's Israel's plan. God opens her gates and flings her all over the world because he wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I don't think Daniel saw that coming. I don't think when they received that letter and they were thinking, why can't we all just go back right now, that they had that kind of stuff in mind. And surely what I just said doesn't take into account all of the things God was working out and planning. It surely doesn't take into account the individual stories that he was dealing with during all of those eras. But it's so fascinating to me in hindsight to think, man, if that wasn't an accident, that was a brilliant strategy. It's just, I can't help but think about this during the time of the exile when all of the Israelites were hoping to go back and God was thinking about all of the world outside of Israel that he would bring to a knowledge and love of him through them. There's more, of course, all right? God has told us quite a bit more about what's coming after our 70 years or so. You can read about it in your Bible. Um, and if you're reading Daniel uh, with our staff and leadership over the course of this semester, you know that Daniel actually resists some things in culture too. He resists sometimes. And we're gonna talk about that next week. Why does Daniel resist some things? And what can we learn from that? Did Jesus resist some things? Are we called to actually resist some things? I mean, maybe we should read Harry Potter. I don't know. I mean, is that like a thing, really? But the overwhelming story here, and it's, 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 it's part one of a kind of a two-part deal with next week. But which one of us, when we think about God's plans, understands that what God is asking is for you to live on behalf of him and others, not just for yourself. This, this, this is one of those things that should hit us as obvious when we remember Jesus summarizing the greatest commandment, right? Love God, love others. It's not secure for yourself a great plan for life or love yourself really well forever. If you call yourself a Christian, then you've already had to admit just how much God thinks of you and who you are is more than secure. God intends to free you in that so that you can think about others. Your roommates, your professors, your parents, even the political leaders right now. Are we looking out for their welfare? Are we looking out for their welfare? What is God's plan for our life? I urge you, brothers and sisters, pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. And consider who God must be to love this world like that. I don't know what the world thinks about Christians, but when I read the scriptures and I think about what God has told us, we're supposed to be for them. Love them. Look out for their welfare. Serve them. Lay down our lives for them that they might come to know the love of Christ who laid down his life for me and you. If God has called his people to be like that in the world, what must he be like? I hope, I don't even know what songs we're singing next, but I hope as, as we have the opportunity to respond in some singing, that you begin to think about who God is, that he would have his people be like this in the world. How gracious he is, that he would call us to love our enemies, 
to pray for our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, to look out for the welfare of the people that we live amongst. Imagine what it would look like if we did that. I don't know specifically, I said this earlier, I don't know specifically how God will nuance your particular plan or God's plan for your life in particular. I just know that in the end, when I look at all of it, every single one of us in God's plan, it will be marked by prayers for all people and looking out for others and considering others greater than ourselves and outdoing others in honor, looking out for their welfare. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, first, um, first, Lord, I, I confess that we cannot begin to look at others unless we feel like you have looked at us. So where that hasn't happened yet, would you please bring it? Um, I pray for my friends in this room that don't know you yet, and don't know your love yet. And for all of us who do, would you free us to love others and to look out for their welfare? May this campus and this city be changed by the, by the faithful way that we live for others. May we be known as sacrificial people who pray for and love others. And may we never forget that you do all of these things for us. Receive our praise now. Um, please receive our praise and lead us out of this place, showing us um, how to be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.